It's Monday, October 31st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. No Taylor Muckerman today. What, is he at trick-or-treating already? I think, you know what, I don't know. So, in the absence of not knowing, I'm going to say yes. Do they do different things in Canada when it comes it's to Halloween? Taylor, Taylor is out trick-or-treating. <laughs> And that's unfortunate because we're we're going to be talking about a deal that's right up his alley. But you know what? We're going to cover it without him. But I, I got to start with this: lots of comments, emails, tweets, Facebook posts from the dozens of listeners about Halloween candy. We genuinely have a a wonderful and flattering listenership. Every, yes. every week, it just it, it never fails. You guys, you guys pull through. Yeah, and everyone has their own opinion on candy. But if there was an emerging theme. To the comments that we got, and there was, I believe the theme was uh, the dozens siding with Dan Boyd over Bill Barker <laughs> when it comes to Reese's Pieces. Just overwhelmingly, people were like, "I have no idea what Bill Barker is saying. I, I don't know why he's hating on Reese's Pieces. Dan Boyd is right." I mean, did you see ET? <sighs> and Jason Newman, I don't know if you saw that, but he had, he had, uh, I, I think it was on Facebook or or um, or Twitter. He was in Chicago on business and found the new candy that Reese's has produced, which is the Reese's peanut one. butter cup with the Reese's pieces inside it. What? Yeah, I know. We got to we got to wrap this up so we can go do some research on that. Um, we're gonna talk a little profit versus revenue in the world of earnings, and we're gonna look at a potential competing bid for Time Warner. But let's start with the deal of the day. General Electric's oil services business uh, may be on the verge of getting a lot bigger because uh, there's a deal to combine with Baker Hughes, and the resulting business would be a $32 billion business. And you and I were just going back and forth on this before we started taping about one of the questions facing this deal is, look, Halliburton and Baker Hughes had a deal on the table, and it did not go through. We had a deal, and uh, and so what makes anyone think that GE is going to get approval for this deal? Because you did a quick look at the numbers, and this, just in terms of the size of the resulting business, this looks like it could be every bit as big as the proposed Halliburton Baker Hughes deal. Yeah, I mean, it does seem that way. I think that's the question. This this um, deal really begs first and foremost, and just to put some numbers around it, if you look at Halliburton's. Trailing twelve-month revenue, it's it's around seventeen billion dollars. And for GE, this segment of their business, the oil and gas segment, two thousand and fifteen brought in about sixteen and a half billion dollars. So they're basically the same size from a revenue perspective. And so then, yeah, you have to wonder. I mean, this this thing was just basically bagged. I mean, like Halliburton and Baker Hughes, they said no go. Why do we think that this GE deal would actually stand a chance? And I think. Perhaps the argument that could be made here, at least, is that Halliburton is generally seen as a company that provides services to a lot of, basically, to the upstream market in oil and natural gas. So it's kind of like the the pre-production, like going into the E and P's, that helping helping like the the explorers or the producers get that stuff done. Whereas General Electric, I think GE, they're they're Oil and natural gas segment is a bit more um, total solution. I think they kind of try to serve um, f- from from beginning to end, sort of soup to nuts, so to speak. So I, th- I think that maybe it's it's the notion that this merger would be more of focusing on that that total solution versus focusing on 
um, you know, versus like Halliburton's, you know, one particular market that they focus on in, in, in upstream. It's anybody's guess at this point as to whether this goes through. I mean, we we all kind of figured that the Baker, the Hall, the Halliburton Baker Hughes deal would have gone through. This is probably going to stand the same kind of scrutiny. Um, but with that said, I mean, it, it, GE is a very well diversified business, and the, this could be seen as certainly a good thing at the end of the day, as it as it brings two very big energy companies uh, together. And and I think. Going forward, this space—I mean, scale and consolidation is inevitable. It's not a matter of of, of if, but when and who. Um, so I, I tend to look at this and think it'll probably it'll probably make it. But again, I mean, we said the same thing about Halliburton. It's still very early in the, early in the game. I mean, if it does happen, it, it sounds like it spins off as a, separ- a separately traded company on the market uh, with ownership stakes from both companies. And um, I mean, hey, whenever you have a a business that has its focus on doing one thing well, I mean, I I tend to like that. I think that's that's uh, that's a nice thing to have. Jeff Immelt is the chairman and CEO of General Electric, and I thought he was uh, doing a nice job of showing off his political skill uh, <laughs> this morning when he was talking about this deal because the, he was talking about it in terms of uncertain uh, uncertainty, and I, I took that. As a way for him to sort of mollify two groups of people, um, talking about it, saying, "Hey, the the time to do a deal like this is when things are uncertain." And he was referring to the price of oil, and saying, "You know what? This is the time to do it." And so I think that for his shareholders who may be concerned about the price of oil and the potential for a, an increasingly slow recovery on the price of oil. It was his way of saying, "Hey, look, this is the smart time to do a deal like this. You don't want to do a deal like this when everything is known." And I think that for regulators who are looking at this, for the for the actual politicians up on Capitol Hill, I think it was also sort of a nod towards, "Hey, we're taking a little bit of a risk here. We're not going to be some huge conglomerate. That's you know, the resulting business is not going to be some behemoth, and therefore you should let the deal go through." Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean that's a very good point. Certainly, when you make Offers like these, it's in the face of uncertainty. I mean, certainty is where the price would certainly um, reflect more uh, rosy outlook. And so, I mean, th- this is probably seen as perhaps a, you know, a way to get some good value um, in in the M and A space. And and I mean, if you look, I mean, Emil's been the CEO of of GE for fifteen some odd years, I think now. I mean, if you look at GE just uh, over the past ten years, it's not been. That great of an investment for for shareholders. I mean, it's just not. And so, I mean, there there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I think that probably one reason is that they become so diversified. Um, don't really you know don't really focus on doing any one thing well. I think it's just recently we're spinning off their finance wings. I think they're really trying to whittle this business back down to the core of, um, you know, let letting letting its parts do more than perhaps they would as 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 a whole. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, certainly in the political process here. What what the next you know year to four years is going to look like with whoever's in the White House and however they want to you know approach our policies, domestic and international. Uh, so I mean, yeah, I think that certainly Emelt's experience in dealing with politicians, in dealing with shareholders, in dealing with the press, in in going through this this M and A space. It should serve them well, and again, I mean, I think it makes sense to try to let GE maybe 
break out the pieces of the business and let them all kind of focus on doing their own thing. And maybe that's that's going to be the better way for shareholders to to see a path towards some returns here. Goldman Sachs is reportedly trying to convince Apple to make a competing bid for Time Warner, and they may just think it's a good idea. It may be completely self-interested because <laughs> Goldman Sachs was not involved in the AT&T Time Warner proposed $85 billion deal. So, let's put Goldman Sachs' interests aside just for the moment. Should Apple make a competing bid? Should they? Well, I mean, my first question, yeah, it's hard to tell if this is totally self-serving on Goldman's part or not. I mean, I, the pessimist in me thinks it probably is, <laughs> for the most part. Although, Tim Cook has talked, um, I don't want to say in glowing terms about Time Warner in the past, yeah. but he's he. it's not an out-of-the-blue idea. No, Tim no, Cook no, has talked not. about Time Warner yeah, before. Yeah, I think they've, they've at one point been kicking, kicking the tires there. And I mean, I think... Goldman Sachs aside, I actually do think this could be a decent idea. I I I've been wondering with Apple for a while now. We've been talking about this a lot with million dollar portfolio, because Apple is is a four and a half percent position in the portfolio today, and we talk a lot about Tim Cook and how he's done as CEO. And we I think we talked about it over um the weekend here on Motley Money. Shareholders have done very well over the past five years with Tim Cook at the helm. I mean, your money is double. But at its core, Apple is still a phone company, and there's nothing that is indicating to us yet that it really is deviating from that path. Now, that's okay in the sense that they can sell a lot of phones here in the coming years. I mean, I don't know that there's anything out there that really disrupts the smartphone in the near term. Technology obviously moves fast, but we've been trying to look at Apple as what are they going to do with this massive amount of capital they have? They've got 200 and Thirty-five billion or so dollars on their balance sheet in, in cash and short-term. I mean, it's just—it's an absurd number to think of. It is of. an absurd number. And and you see every quarter. I mean, on Twitter, these people are framing it out like Apple could buy all of the NBA, all of the MLB, all of the NHL, all of the NFL, and still have money left over to throw a party. They need to do something. Tim Cook's legacy is not going to be as a phone guy. His legacy is going to be—he's going to need to be as, as a capital allocator. What he does with this, with this massive balance sheet and. Apple needs to figure out a way to diversify away from being just a hardware company. I mean, the numbers aren't necessarily all that encouraging when you look at iPads and Macs. I mean, I think they really need to figure out a way to diversify away from hardware. Time Warner could be a way to do that. I mean, having a lot of content properties, we know that Apple's trying to figure out a new way to sort of do TV. There's a lot of different directions they could go if they did make this deal. It would be a very big, splashy acquisition. They certainly have the capital to do it, um, and it could be a way for them to diversify away from being just a hardware company with a lot of valuable properties out there, from entertainment to news to sports. Um, so I would not be averse to actually seeing, you know, some competition there. Whether it happens or not, who knows? But I, I, I get behind at least kicking the tires. Certainly, if you're a Time Warner shareholder, you're hoping Apple comes in with a competing bid. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, anytime you have something that other people want, that's a great thing, right? And I mean, if you think about all the hardware out there that Apple has today, I mean, if you own Time Warner, which is a lot of properties in there, I mean, you got HBO, CNN, a bunch of sports stuff. I mean, now you're talking about ways that you can just have that stuff automatically loaded on every iPhone, every iPad that you sell out there, so that people automatically have it on there. 
And then, I mean, you, you got to a point where you can scale that thing up and really offer competitive pricing on subscriptions. I mean, that just plays into that services revenue that they do a pretty good job of today. But I don't think anybody out there is really arguing that iTunes is like this super friendly interface that everybody loves to use. I mean, I think generally speaking, iTunes has gotten worse over time. It's become more difficult to use. And I think people are less and less focused about buying and owning digital content as much as they would rather just kind of, you know, pay for the rights to stream it for a given point in time. So, I mean, that's why we've seen Netflix do so well. We've seen Amazon do so well. We see a lot of music streaming companies out there doing their thing. And, um, I mean, Apple certainly has the hardware and the know-how to present things in a nice, simple fashion. So I could see them doing the same thing with these uh, Time Warner properties if they decided to get their uh, throw their hat in the ring. You're obviously referring to music's telev- music, television, and movies with iTunes. You're not talking about podcasts because that's, I mean, they do a phenomenal job with podcasts. Well, that goes without <laughs> saying, Chris. I mean, podcasts really are. The- that's the I mean, future, right? That's I mean, the that's game why changer for iTunes. That's why we're in here doing what we're doing every day. Um, all right, let's let's. I saw this stat this morning. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. We are halfway through earnings season right now, and the stat I saw was that of the companies that have reported, seventy-four percent of them are beating expectations in terms of earnings per share. Fifty-eight percent are beating expectations with respect to revenue. If you back that out over the last four quarters, it actually become the disparity becomes a little larger. It's seventy percent beating on profit, and only fifty percent beating on revenue. Which leads me to a couple of questions, and I'll start with: Are we undervaluing revenue as a metric? I look at that <laughs> and I think: Should we be focusing a little? Because that's. I'll just speak for myself. My. First question when a company reports earnings is almost always, how did they do on profit? And I'm wondering if I need to reorient my thinking a little bit towards skewing a little bit closer to revenue. So I think the short answer is it depends. I mean, I think we always say that. <laughs> That's the beauty of investing, right? It's just this big world of stuff, and we're always um, assessing things from all these different perspectives. And and typically, when you look at revenue versus profit, I mean, ideally, you want to see growth in both, right? Um, the bigger a company gets, you'd like to see that profitability improving over time. It kind of depends on what that time frame is. But generally speaking, I mean, when we look at a company like Amazon, for example, we talk a lot about Amazon. And the first number that I go to every quarter for Amazon is I want to look at that top line revenue number. I want to see how they're growing sales. Because I know that right now, Amazon is not as much an earnings story. It's more about they're trying to gain more and more market share. And the way to do that is through low prices, convenience, growing sales so that they continue to build out this big infrastructure of distribution centers and whatnot, trying to whittle down the distance between the product and the consumer. So, at some point or another, yeah, it, it starts to turn the other way, where you say, okay, we know growth is going to start slowing on the revenue side, but assuming that the business has been built out effectively and it has a compelling business model, as that business grows larger, we'd like to see it scale and be able to bring more and more profitability down to the bottom line. And so, you know, we see a lot of these startups, for example, that bring in these just phenomenal billion-dollar-plus income statements on the revenue side, but they're not profitable because they're investing all of this money back into the business. And whether it's SG&A or whether it's stock-based company, whatever it is, I mean, they're just they're not profitable. And the idea is, at some point, you want to see them profitable. Um, 
And then it becomes imperative that a business is able to translate that revenue into earnings. Ultimately, if a business is not producing earnings, then you have to wonder how compelling of a business model is it, right? And so, I think another good example of a business to look at is MasterCard. Because you can see MasterCard is a very well-established business. Um, a lot of people don't even give it a second thought, really. It's just on a card that's in your wallet, most likely. But they control kind of that toll road where a lot of our money flows. And so, they have this business where they are very big, between MasterCard and Visa, very big, well-established businesses that have been around for a while. So, they're not growing their sales, necessarily, at that same kind of clip. But because they've got these built-out infrastructure, these built-out networks, and they're pretty capital-like businesses anyway, the revenue that they make can translate into extremely attractive profits. And furthermore, when companies like MasterCard and Visa are at the stage they're in, because they make so much money, they can start buying back more and more shares quarter in, quarter out. And once you start buying back more and more shares, that that decreases that amount of shares outstanding, which then in turn can boost your earnings per share even more. And the market's going to judge typically these companies on a multiple um, based on their earnings per share. And and so it depends on the business for sure. But but regardless, Ideally, you want to see sales growth translating into robust and growing profitability. And if you can see that profitability over time growing at a faster rate than even sales are, that's that's a nice thing to see too. A lot of times, the market essentially, you know, when you're looking at the the earnings per share multiple, the price to earnings multiple, that typically is an indicator of of the market's expectations for growth. And you see some companies out there that maybe trade at a PE of 15 to 20, but the stock price reflects considerably higher expectations. And that can often be because of a business's competitive position, uh, the success it's, it's had up to date, its, it's stranglehold on the market. Uh, um, McCormick is a business that always comes to mind there because it always trades at this multiple that just is, is exponentially higher than, than the actual growth there. But it's because it's such a great business, so reliable, uh, the quarter in, quarter out. It just continues to bring these great numbers, and the market will pay up for quality, no doubt about that. You just reminded me that, on the flip side, we've talked in this room about various companies over the past few years where they come out with an earnings report, and the headline is, they beat on earnings per share, or they made an acquisition, that kind of thing. And Oftentimes, you or someone else will say, "Yeah, but look at their top line. They're not growing the top yeah. line. They haven't, you know, it's been flat year over year." Um, I also appreciate that you touched on another question I have, which has to do with sort of the age of a company. Mm-hmm. We've seen that where it's like a young upstart company, maybe just a few years old, and they're. They come out with earnings, and it's there are no earnings, <laughs> yeah. and it's like you know what they don't need to worry about that yet. They need to grow. They need to get as big as they can, as fast as they can, because they can they can turn that into earnings per share down the road. But right now, if they start getting, which I have to believe is probably a tough balancing act, because I'm sure there are, all, and we've seen this with different CEOs or certainly VCs come out saying. Opposite sides. Some saying, "No, I I want a company to get as big as they can, as fast as they can. Don't worry about the profits; those will come in time." And then others saying, "You know what? I want I want to see you make some money, and I or, or I want to see at least it doesn't have to be in the first year of your existence, but you better be able to demonstrate pretty quickly 
and pretty specifically that you can be profitable. Yeah, and I think, man, I mean, just so many different ways to look at that. And and I mean, it's always a concern if you look at the business and say, all right, well, why is revenue not growing? I mean, it 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 doesn't mean that it can't be a good investment, but then you have to understand at least if revenue is not growing, then where is the growth and earnings coming from, and maybe there isn't all that much growth in earnings. Maybe this is just kind of a steady eddy business that's able to kind of keep on doing what it's doing and paying a nice dividend. And so, in every every there are all sorts of different styles of investments to consider. And I, and I think, yeah, I, th- I think generally speaking, I mean, it's one thing if if you see a business that has a pretty good offering, um, they do something really well, and you can see that they're growing revenue at a pretty good clip. A lot of times, the market will give it a little leeway on the profitability side because the profitability side that is that is fairly easy to control, particularly in the tech world at least, because you really just have to right size your business. I mean, we're watching Twitter, for example, go through something right now where I mean, I would argue that Twitter could certainly find a clearer path to profitability by just right sizing the business, and and so they're trying to do that, and maybe that'll work. I mean. Um, the key for them is to remain relevant and it be a tool that people still want to use. And we saw um, Facebook. Uh, I mean, they 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 got they got started off on the right foot, right? They just they had their business right size from the beginning and went with a network that size. Um, the market is going to give it a lot more credit and a lot more um, leeway to kind of do its thing. I mean, Amazon has been sort of the poster child for just you you either are for them <laughs> or against them. There's really not kind of any in between. But I think, um, I mean, from a an earnings standpoint, no one ever really could make sense of why Amazon always trade trades so high. But our perspective on Amazon was always you're in this early stages, this kind of wild west of, of retail where it's taking a new turn, and Amazon's making these investments in the business to stake their claim. You're making a bit of a leap of faith that it'll work out, and it doesn't always work out. So that's why we always recommend you. You know, diversify and don't ever back up the truck on any one thing. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>